Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Thank you for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Emily Thomas. Emily is associate professor of philosophy at Durham University in the UK. She works primarily in the philosophy of space and time, the history of early modern philosophy, and the history of metaphysics. But Emily has just published a new book that, at least at first glance, appears to mark a departure from the topics at the core of her philosophical research. But as I expect us to see in the course of our conversation, that appearance is deceptive. In any case, Emily's new book is titled The Meaning of Travel, Philosophers Abroad. It's published by Oxford University Press. When you think about it, travel its significance and its hazards, has been a topic lurking in the background, at least, of a lot of philosophy. Socrates was keen to remind his jury, as well as his interlocutor Phaedrus, that he spent nearly his entire life within the walls of the city Athens. For another example, Descartes saw fit to take the intellectual journey of his meditations from a room in a foreign country. But that's not all. Many great philosophical works comment on the value of travel. Here you might think of the reflections that close Rousseau's Emile. In The Meaning of Travel, Emily Thomas picks up this long-standing, though now generally overlooked, philosophical concern with travel. This is a fascinating book. It not only reflects on the philosophical significance of travel, but is also a philosophical travelogue in its own right. There's a lot to talk about here, but let's begin, as we normally do, with our guest, the author. Hello, Emily. Hi, Bob. How are you today? Very well, thanks. I hope you're good, too. Uh, yeah, doing, doing pretty well under the circumstances. Um, you know, why don't you um, start us off by telling us a little bit uh, about yourself? Thanks. So I was born in the UK and I studied at UK universities at Birmingham for my undergraduate and then Cambridge for my PhD. And after that, I moved to the Netherlands for three years. And actually, the book was mostly written while I was living in the Netherlands. um, It's a really wonderful place, one that I miss. um, And after that, I moved back to the UK. So I am now very much in Durham, not going anywhere for the foreseeable future. Yeah, <laughs> that's fabulous. And so, did you you your your previous work is in the sort of um, some technical areas of philosophy? Am I right? The the sort of the history of philosophy of space and time. Yeah, I think technical is a good word to describe it. Actually, like so previously, um, I worked on space and time theories from the 17th to the 20th century, I'm always interested in origin stories. So how theories were invented and developed, how they were critiqued and how they changed. Um, But it is fairly, 
technical. It's the kind of work you really do have to sit down and explain very slowly to people outside my area. <laughs> well, so this is uh, then in, in at least this respect, um, uh, the new book, The Meaning of Travel, um, is a departure in that regard, uh, because this is a um, for a philosophically rich uh, and engaging a book. Um, this is uh, the kind of work that can be uh, picked up by just about anyone uh, and 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 read in a way, I should say, um, you know, I found myself thinking um, that uh, I might be able to um, give give your book to um, uh, to a particular friend who um, very proudly likes to remind me how uh, he does not like to read philosophy books <laughs> and might trick him into reading a philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> I trick him into reading one. <laughs> yes. It was very much written to be read by non-philosophers, uh, which is a huge departure, actually. Um, and learning to write in a non-technical way when that's what you've been doing for years and years was really hard. And it's a really good exercise, though. It forces you to write things simply and clearly. And, and it's actually affected my technical writing I think hugely for the better. That's wonderful. I mean, um, yeah. Well, it is a you've succeeded in in it's it's a it's a you know for a philosophy again the, the philosophical content is very present, uh, but the book is a is a is a page turner. Um, but um, so let's let's then get into it. Um, so um, you know, as we've already in, indicated, and, and as your, uh, your 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 introduction of yourself sort of suggested, um, you know, there's a background story to this book. You know, there's yeah. there's an origin story for this book, even. Yeah. Um, and uh, as I was just suggesting in the introduction, um, you know, the book works at many different levels. Um, so it's a survey and reflection of uh, reflection upon rather various philosophical questions that are occasioned by travel. Uh, and you use um, uh, the works of, you know, people like Francis Bacon and John Locke and Descartes and Margaret Cavendish, uh, Thoreau, uh, as guides, uh, both in the, um, uh, the travel sense of guide and the intellectual sense of guide. Um, so the book is 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 on on the one hand a sort of ongoing reflection about travel with um, the help of some people who've uh, come before and have thought about travel, but the book is also a document of your journey to Alaska, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I take it you took in between uh, you know the Netherlands and the and returning to the UK. Um, so can you can you tell us a little bit about uh, about that? setting for the book. And then I want to make sure I ask you the question of what it's been like to have published a travel book um, amidst a uh, global pandemic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> These are all good questions. <laughs> so I suppose what I left out of my brief autobiography is the fact that Across the years of studying, I also spent several years backpacking at many different trips, many months and months at a time. Um, I was just obsessed in my 20s. Um, I wandered around Africa, South America, parts of Asia, the Middle East. So travel's been a part of my life for a long time. And I've always traveled by myself. And I've always 
wondered about the history of travel, but it never occurred to me that there might be a lot to say about it philosophically until this period of my life when I was living in the Netherlands um, and I had finished writing a technical book about time and suddenly I had this gap in my workflow and, and I just got bitten by this idea that perhaps I should look into philosophy and travel. I had this trip to Alaska coming up and the two things it just became intertwined. I, so the book, it absolutely, it is about a trip I took to Alaska. Um, and it's about me wandering through that beautiful state. Uh, it is gorgeous. If you haven't been, I urge you to visit once the lockdown finishes. It was a really magical place. Um, and along the way, I was reading lots of philosophy and thinking about how what I was reading could apply to the places that I was seeing. So the book, on the one hand, is um, there's a little bit of a travel log through Alaska. And then the rest of it is this exploration into philosophy's relationship with travel through history. So I really start in the age of discovery back in the 16th, 17th century, which is when I think Western philosophers really got into travel um, and it takes us through to the present day. Right, right. Um, and, you know, uh, the to your credit, the, the, the weaving together, the weaving, the, the travel, you know, the Emily Thomas traveling through Alaska part of the book with the philosophical reflections is... Um, is you know really magnificently done. I mean, you know, it 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 you know the book shifts gears in lots of ways in way, but um, the shift is always you know really seamless. So um, you know you you could be really engrossed in the discussion about um, that we'll get to in a moment. Uh, you know about Locke uh, and um, uh, and the discussion about microscopes, and then. Um, the next paragraph, you're like, oh, yeah, she's in Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> That's very kind of you. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, so the big question, though, um, you know, uh, as you just recommended people going to uh, visit Alaska after the lockdown, um, you know, has anything, you know, what, what do you make of the fact that you have this, this book, you know, this philosophy book about travel that's also a travelogue that um, – sort of came out just as people were um, being um, prohibited from traveling. It was at first a really surprising experience to have, not just that the crisis was surprising, uh, but it was a very strange experience. I had ra various radio shows scheduled, for example, um, that were just going to be asking about the philosophy of travel. And, and suddenly people didn't want to talk about the philosophy of travel anymore. They wanted to know what I thought about the crisis. And, and that was an unexpected development. I think the big thing this has driven home for me is how much of a privilege travel is. In the Western world, it has always been a privilege. Historically, leisure travel was the province of people who were really wealthy, who had leisure time and resources. It, uh, it initially started with the Grand Tour, these young aristocrats wandering around Europe. 
Um, and as the centuries have gone on, travel has been open more and more to the masses, but it is still a privilege that not everyone can travel widely today. And I think being reminded of that, that this isn't something we automatically all get to do, is a positive thing. I hope it will help us value travel even more than we do already and encourage us to help people who don't currently have the privileges of traveling to extend them further. Right, right, right. And I guess that, um, you know, if something is true in um, at least certain of the um, the philosophical approaches to travel that that you're that, that you discuss in the book, which is that travel makes available to us certain kinds of morally educative experiences mm-hmm. um, that we confront the you know the alien and the unknown and the unfamiliar, and uh, if approached in the right way, um, that can you know. Um, you know, help elucidate things about, you know, the good life and morals and all the rest. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that we're, you know, the, the lockdown means that, you know, the, it's, a, it's a pedagogical uh, crisis as well. It's sort of like we're losing opportunities to grow morally in certain ways that otherwise, uh, you know, we kind of had taken for granted. I think that's true. I think at its very best, travel really does broaden the mind. It helps us to learn new things, understand other people's point of view. It gives you new new perspectives. And not being able to do that, it cuts off a way of learning about the world. I mean, of course, travel isn't the only way of learning about the world. And I'm reading a lot of travel books at the moment as a way of armchair traveling. And they can also be fantastic sources of if new ideas and new perspectives, but it is so sad not to be able to go out and experience things firsthand. Mm, right. So let me ask one um, one additional sort of background kind of question, um, and you know to pick up on the the, the 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 point you were making earlier about how the kind of writing that you um, engaged in in writing uh, the meaning of travel you know, was in some ways quite distinct from the um, the kind of writing that you uh, had done previously in philosophy of space and philosophy of time. Um, so and I want to ask um, sort of how you see these two um, sides of your intellectual personality, if that's not putting it too strongly connected. I mean, so what got you interested in the project other than that you're just, you know, um, you know, you've, you, you've, you've loved travel uh, for a long time. Um, you know, I came away from the book um, fully convinced uh, that of something that I hadn't thought before, which was that there's a philosophical thing to be thought or a philosophical topic to be um, interrogated um, uh, in travel and that traveling is a, a site of philosophical reflection. Um, so, you know, h- how do you see the interest in travel and the interest in the philosophy of travel as connected to the more technical uh, interests that uh, you have in other areas of your work. For example, do you think that the philosophy of travel is connected to metaphysics? That's a good question. So part of why I wrote the book is because my work up until that point was largely read by specialists only. And part of me 
felt that I wanted to get philosophy out beyond the academy. Specialist work is really valuable. It really matters. But it's helpful to explain to people why things matter. So partly I just wanted to get out some philosophical ideas that I thought were really interesting and not being discussed. And it's also fun, frankly, as a philosopher who works on technical stuff a lot of the time, it tends to be very narrow. And it's really enjoyable to do something broad and a bit looser. And so it was it made a really nice change from the technical work. I think I will always be someone who does both. And and I see myself bouncing back and forth between them. That said, I do think that they're deeply connected. One of the issues I discuss in the book is the way that a new kind of philosophy of space in the 17th century led to an increase in mountain tourism. And it seems like a really implausible link. But actually, when you begin looking at the way people suddenly associated space with God, and from there they begin to think of infinite-seeming landscapes like mountains or seas um, as space and thus associated with God. Um, And then you look at the uptake and things like mountain tourism. Um, I actually think the argument is really plausible. And so I think there is a surprising amount of like deep technical metaphysics and um, has made its way into our society in unexpected ways and talking about that i think is also great right right fabulous so um let's um th- that's good in 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 giving setting the sort of stage for the book mm-hmm. um so uh, but let's let's you know let's let's get into uh, the, the 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 you know how, how the book progresses. Um, now, my guess could be wrong about this. There's some armchair sociology of the philosophy <laughs> profession. Uh, <laughs> warning. Uh, my guess is that a lot of philosophers um, have uh, wondered and maybe even worried about maps, <laughs> um, uh, which are these you know. Uh, um, you know these oddly um uh these 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 items that um on the one hand um sort of present themselves as totally transparent um it's just you know here's where the streets connect and this is the mm. this is what here's north is this way and here's the most direct route from this point to that point um but on the other hand, um, you know, especially if you're thinking of sort of maps of continents and worlds and, uh, you know, the world and the globe and borders and uh, where um, natural divisions between territories may lay, yes. um, you know, the maps also clearly, um, you know, have agendas. They reveal in some perhaps deliberate, maybe in some unwitting ways, um, the interests and the biases and the perspectives of the cartographers. Um, can you tell us a bit? So the book begins, you know, with this discussion of maps. Uh, can you tell us um, uh, about um, some of your uh, philosophical reflections about maps and the map, particularly the map that you were using uh, 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 in Alaska? <laughs> I can. I, so I 
never thought much about maps before I began this book. Um, I really loved maps. I have maps framed on my walls. I like using them. I really thought they were straightforward objects. As you say, a map tells you where this road is, which way this building faces with regard to north. And once I began getting into the philosophy of maps, I discovered just how wrong that is, that a map is not a straightforward metaphysical object, that it's actually really complex and opaque, a bit like an onion. Maps have lots mm. of layers. And, and this cartographer and philosopher, Brian Harley, he was the first person to really make this case um, sort of 20, 30 years ago now. And he argued that maps can be used to persuade people of things. And he gives us various examples. One of the easiest ones to picture is a world map. So if you look at European world maps, Europe is in the centre. If you look at um, American world maps, America's in the centre. Same for Chinese world maps and even for Japanese world maps. And Harley argued that whatever you put in the centre of a map seems to be important. That that's the reference point from which everything else is kind of mapped out from. And so when you put something in the centre of a map, you're saying that this is the most important thing that there is there. Um, and maps can be used to persuade us about all kinds of things. So how powerful a country is might be reflected in how big it is. So some maps distort the size of countries, and that's likely to give you an impression about how important or not that country is. And what maps do and do not represent is also going to affect your view of the world. So, for example, a map of the city of Durham is going to show the castle and the cathedral. It's probably not going to show local council estates. And what's built into that is a view on what's important. And, and these things have a big impact on the way we see the world. What you can also look at today, there are various disputed borders around the world as to where a border should be drawn between two places and take the Israel-Palestine border for example and different maps put these borders in different places so these maps they're not just representing reality they're actually trying to shape our view of reality and and once I began to realize that you come to realize just how powerful maps are they're these really opaque objects that have a lot of power in our world today. Right. So let me add one um, <laughs> one one thing about maps that um, is is true in um, is true in the states. I don't. I haven't seen data that that um, uh, about the UK. Um, but um, the more maps you have in your home in the United States, the more liberal politically you're likely to be. Goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I have not come across that before. <laughs> um, so yeah, so there, there are these even like the interest in maps has got a kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're also. By the way, the United States is also a country where you know the more you know the more the you know 
being liberal positively correlates with having a passport. So, you know, there are ways to sort of make the connection. But um, so interesting. Um, Now, you claim uh, that um, Francis Bacon, uh, who a lot of us, you know, know for one or two of the things that he's claimed to have said, um, knowledge is power, we take nature to the rack. Um, uh, But um, Bacon's philosophy of science, you claim, um, and this is a quote, uh, is behind the importance that 17th century natural philosophers attached to travel. Um, can you tell us about that? Now, you know, I, 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 and before reading your book, I had, you know, a sense of Bacon's role, uh, in, um, uh, sort of understanding science is not just a classificatory, but an experimental, uh, enterprise and all the rest. I had sort of had the, you know, the typical philosopher on the street understanding of Francis Bacon's role in the, the history of, of modern philosophy. Um, but I never understood that aspect of, um, uh, the impact of his, uh, um, approach to science. Uh, so can you tell us about that? I can. So Francis Bacon, overthrew centuries of earlier thinking when he argued that if we want to understand the natural world we need to go out and look at it (laughs) we need Mm. to observe it and and collect data about it and and once we've collected data uh, we can form theories which we can then go out into the world and again collect more data to to have a sense of whether or not those theories are true. And this sounds like such a basic method of learning about the natural world that I think it's surprising that it was not adopted before him, but it really wasn't. Many natural philosophers believed you could learn about the world from your armchair by reasoning about what plants or animals are like. So Bacon introduced this new philosophy of science and absolutely fundamental to that philosophy of science was the idea of going out into the world and going out as far as you can. So he argued that travel is essential to this new project of understanding the universe that we're living in. And he drew up enormous lists of things that we should seek to understand. So he wanted us to understand like, the moon, the oceans, um, all the different kinds of metals, the fish in the sea. And I think ideally he wanted to create a natural history of our entire universe. So going far beyond our planet. And of course, human beings, we are nowhere near there at all. We know only a tiny amount about a fractional little part of our universe right? because we're very small <laughs> we haven't been around very long that <laughs> Francis Bacon uh, Francis Bacon's ambitions were just enormous and and so he came up with this new philosophy of science and the people that followed him uh, in England they created a royal society really to carry out this project of creating um, a natural history of the world. And for these men, travel became central to the project. And they very cunningly began issuing calls for information to people who were out already traveling. So 
this the age of discovery, as it's now known, when European ships set off to look for new trade routes to colonize various lands in ways that were often not very good for the people who were already there. That meant that there was a very wide network of Europeans who were already sort of occupying far-flung places in the globe. And the Royal Society basically began asking them lots of questions. Um, and some of them are really funny. I, you know, it <laughs> might be something like, um, we have heard <laughs> that in India um, there are rabbits that move on two feet. <laughs> Could you please yeah. confirm that that's true? Or, you know, we have heard that frogs fall from the sky in this particular part of the world. Um, You're out there. Could you tell us whether that's really the case? Um, So the Royal Society began collecting masses and masses of data, partly in the forms of travel logs and travel books, and partly in the forms of things, so fossils, um, stuffed animals, uh, bits of plants, bits of rock. And and very slowly, the idea of a natural history museum, in effect, was born. And so these, what we would now call them scientists, although back then the science was so mixed with the philosophy, it would be very difficult to pull them apart. But what they set out to do is categorise everything in the world. and, And travel for them is just fundamental to that project. And that is why Francis Bacon is at the heart of this new philosophical attitude towards travel. I think he kicked the whole thing off. Right, right, right. So, um, you know, one of the things that um, you um, discuss early in the book uh, as and then are, are critical of um but it might be connected uh, in some ways to what we just said about, or what you just said about Bacon. Um, yeah, some people think that there's this distinction between travel uh, and tourism, where travel is this very serious thing, <laughs> and tourism is this um, less serious, more um, uh, leisurely uh, um, uh, uh, pursuit. Um, now, you devote a, tra- a chapter to how tourism started. Um, uh, but can you tell us a little bit about why you, you're skeptical of the distinction, uh, at least as it was just suggested, it's drawn uh, between travel and tourism? I can. Okay, so when we think about the activity of travel in general, that can mean travel of all kinds. It might include business travel or going on a pilgrimage. Um, and leisure travel is clearly, leisure travel or tourism is a small part of the overall activity of travel. But there was a travel historian called Paul Fussell. And in the 1980s, he argued, and he's just talking about leisure travel now, that there is a distinction between travel and tourism in exactly the way you just described. That travel is this serious exploration activity, and whereas tourism is a kind of light-hearted, you're just seeing pre-packaged things that thousands of people have seen before, um, and it's not really a serious or, or exploratory endeavour. Um, and I 
don't think he is right that there is a distinction there at all. I just think that all travellers in the leisure sense are tourists. And I'm not even sure really how you can draw this distinction. I'm just not sure what it means (laughs) to say that some leisure travellers are really serious and others aren't. What I do think he might be getting at is... I think you can draw a spectrum of trips that involve more unfamiliar things than others. Uh, So I think that when we imagine travel journeys, uh, we're really thinking of things like Scott of the Antarctic or um, Eric Newby sort of wandering across Pakistan. And I think these grand journeys feel more like travel because they involve so much that is unfamiliar to the traveller. Whereas if I were to just nip over to France and go to a a British vacation village, I'm going to meet a lot less that's unfamiliar to me. So I don't think there's a distinction between travel and tourism, but I do think that there is a spectrum of trips where you're encountering more or less of the unknown. And of course, what is unknown is always from your perspective. As in, you know, for me going to the US, there's going to be lots of things that are unfamiliar to me. Whereas for you, it would be the opposite. For you, the US would be a relatively familiar place. Mm. To come over to the UK would involve lots of unfamiliar experiences. I see, I see. So um, how how did tourism start then? tourism really got going in the 17th century before that you don't find tourism even as a concept actually at least not in the western world which is all I can claim to have looked at so what you get in the 17th century are these wealthy young noblemen who embark on the grand tour And this is supposed to be a way of finishing off their education. Um, They'll already have learned languages and history in school, but on the grand tour, they're going to be improving their languages and really seeing history firsthand. They can go and visit the ruins of Rome, for example. And these grand tours really were grand. People travelled overland often for two or three years, and um, it was really something you did when you were very wealthy. And although people from other countries did it too in Western Europe, it was predominantly a British craze. Part, perhaps that's partly due to the island culture. I'm not sure, but it was a really uh, idiosyncratically British thing to send off your young aristocrats to do this. And they had they had guides, right? Um, I'm forgetting what they, they had guides with very with that were. What was the name for the guides? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the analogy is between you used to have these circus masters who would have a string of bears, dancing bears on a leash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> These poor guys were, were the bear leaders for the young aristocrats. And, and the analogy is apt, partly because uh, these young aristocrats didn't necessarily want to go abroad to learn new languages and become cultured at all. Uh, what they really wanted to do uh, was drink and sleep with as many other young people 
as they possibly could. I saw these poor bear leaders were charged with with keeping hold of their bears and, and trying to curb their excesses. <laughs> it sounds a little bit like um, people going off to college in the U.S. Um, but uh, so, so um, and uh, at one point you um, you mention. Um, that some very familiar names served as bear leaders? Mm, Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, George Barclay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some really big philosophers. What's frustrating is that we don't have a lot of information about how their grand tours were. And we have information about the various parts of their travels, but um, but not that much as when they served as bear leaders. I wish we had more. It would be brilliant. But they were very much into the travels of their day. So Barclay, in some of his journals, he records all of the souvenirs that he bought, for example. <laughs> Enormous quantities of things that he's shipping back home. I The thought of, of having... Um of traveling with Thomas Hobbes just strikes me as completely horrifying. I mean, I'm terrified by the. (laughs) 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 I can understand that. There is a little bit of literature on Thomas Hobbes as a bear leader. I think it's fairly speculative, but there is some. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Um, Well, so um, uh, I'll confess. I've not read um, much of um, Margaret uh, Cavendish, although, you know, you've read some of the things that people read in connection with Descartes and the rest. Um, but, um, you know, you have this uh, discussion of uh, a work of hers called The Blazing World. Yeah. Um, and you see Cavendish is constructing a very elaborate and you think philosophically illuminating thought experiment. Yeah. Um, can you tell us about this work? Margaret Cavendish was a rare 17th century woman philosopher. Um, And they're rare just because you had to have money and time in order to be a philosopher in the 17th century. And there weren't that many women who did. And what Cavendish liked to do was write philosophy in uh, the sense that we would normally consider it. She would write straightforward treaties of philosophy but she also wrote this novel, The Blazing World. And the novel is designed to illustrate some of the philosophical theories that she'd written about at more length elsewhere. So Francis Bacon had written a book setting out his new philosophy of science agenda. And he also wrote an unfinished uh, novel called The New Atlantis, And the New Atlantis is very much designed to show how wonderful the world would be if only we did what Bacon said we should do and then sail across the world and find out lots of things about it. So Cavendish also offers us a pair of books. So there's a book where she gives us a philosophy of science and then there's The Blazing World where she illustrates it. And The Blazing World tells the story of a a young noblewoman uh, who is kidnapped whilst walking on the shore of her home world uh, and she ends up on a boat headed to the North Pole um, and she magically is transported through the North Pole into another world and in this other world through a series of events she ends up as empress and, and she sets about running her new empire 
And one of the things that she decides to do is find out what her subjects are working on. And so her subjects come along and they show her various projects. And over the course of the novel, we discover that some of these projects seem to be really pointless. So for example, there's a group of men who are working on telescopes um, and they're pointing the telescopes out at the stars, but they can't come to any agreement on what they're actually seeing, on which bodies are moving where, and they just end up having these pointless squabbles. Um, And exactly the same goes for microscopes. um, They have these microscopes and they're looking down them, but they can't come, they can't offer her any reason as to why they're doing this, why it's useful to say magnify a louse under a lens. Um, And what Cavendish is trying to show us is her objection to Francis Bacon's desire to know all there is, if you like. Cavendish is objecting to what she perceives as the excesses of the Royal Society, where she thinks they are only interested in knowledge for knowledge's sake. And she believes instead that science should be useful to us, that we should only bother to put resources into science if it can be shown to help the human condition. And and this is what she's argued in her technical philosophical treaties. And and then this is the the moral of the story, if you like, that looking down microscopes or looking up at telescopes just isn't helpful for people. And I really do believe that if Cavendish were aware now of some of the useful medical advances that have come about through things like micro through microscopes that she would happily endorse our use of them but I think she'd be firmly on the side of people who argue against say spending billions on mapping deep space you know things that are so far away from us that arguably we're just trying to find out about them for the sake of finding out about them it not because we think they will have any positive impact on the human condition. So that's one aspect of the book. There's this thought experiment that's an objection to how she perceives Bacon's programme. The other thing that's going on in the book is that Cavendish believes that you can, that, that travel is a form of motion and that the way the brain works is through little things moving around in our brains via motion. Um, and so she's writing a travel book that's a novel in a way almost to help us travel it, um, because if we can recreate her blazing world in our minds as we're reading it, there's a sense in which we're really travelling there. And I think that's also a point she's trying to get across. Interesting. Um, you know, maybe this is a, a good point to sort of you know you have a you have a chapter in the book um about whether um you know to, to what extent travel is you know gendered male um can you tell us a little bit about that did, did cavendish if i'm remembering correctly did cavendish herself think that maybe women weren't such great travelers cavendish doesn't talk about women in particular oh. in this area it, but cavendish 
advises people to be very wary of letting their young nobleman go on the grand tour. I assume- <laughs> <laughs> That's it, right. <laughs> so there's a group of philosophers, Adam Smith is also amongst them, who is saying, oh, look, I know that they're supposed to be going off to travel to improve themselves, but actually what happens is that they just engage in all these forms of debauchery and they come back as ruined young men who are worthless for all other purposes. Um, so, so this is a practice that should be ended. Um, and Cavendish was very much on their side. I see, I see. Um, but is 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 travel... Um... Uh, at least as it's understood in these um, these sort of more historical sources, it does seem like it's a male pursuit, though. I think that's absolutely true. Historically, travel and exploration have been dominated by men. And if you ask anyone on the street to name a famous explorer or a famous traveller, they'll very likely name a man. Exactly the same goes for philosophy. And if you look up lists of famous philosophers or lists of famous travellers, they'll be dominated by men. And, And some work has been done in linguistics to show that when concepts have a history that, that is so associated with one gender or the other and um, that that concept can really take on that gender if you like um, and so partly building on that and partly building on some work in feminist philosophy I think both travel and philosophy are male gendered concepts right now anyway it might change in the future but I think right now they their history makes them so Right, right, right. Um, so uh, can we get back to the mountains? <laughs> um, you mentioned this earlier, but I wanted to um, ask you to elaborate. Um, you know, so one of the chapters of the book um, does make very explicit these sort of, um, you know, two kinds of concern that you have as a as a philosopher, right? So um, the uh, apparently there was a point before um, we... Um, understood space in a particular way on the metaphysically speaking. Um, and during that, uh, that time, um, mountains were not regarded as, um, uh, aesthetically interesting, uh, formations or sites for, um, uh, uh, reflection or any of the things that we now associate mountains with. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, how that, that conception of, particularly the metaphysics of space, um, on your account, led us to see mountains differently? Before the early 18th century, when you find discussions of mountains in English language literature, the discussions are almost always negative. So they're described as uh, boils or warts upon the earth, um, (laughs) ugly, desolate protuberances. People really, really disliked them. And then you find this change from the mid-18th century onwards where people describe mountains as uh, holy places, cathedrals to God, um, like places where you can go and, as you say, spiritually reflect and feel closer to to the universe, to to the sense of the divine. Um, And there is a literary scholar called uh, Majory Hope Nicholson who argued that back in the mid-20th century that this 
shift came about as a result of a new metaphysics of space that was advanced in the first instance by Henry Moore. So Henry Moore, he's writing around sort of 1640 to 1680. He's an English Cambridge philosopher and Moore is trying to figure out what space is. And he comes to the conclusion that space is absolute. It's literally a kind of thing. It has properties of its own. Um, It's infinite, it's unchanging, it's eternal. But Moore is very worried about this because Moore is working in a deeply religious society where God is supposed to be the only thing that has those qualities that's eternal, immutable, infinite. And so Moore decides, well, the solution to this must be that space is God. Mm. And he argues that space is God's omnipresence, that space is God's infinite presence in the world. And, And Henry Moore himself was extremely influential amongst philosophers, but the person who picked up this idea of absolute space was just influential in every regard, and that's Isaac Newton. So once Newton adopted absolute space, suddenly this idea goes viral, if you like, and it's discussed far beyond philosophy. So in my own work, I've found references to absolute space from farmers who are writing letters, even from stocking makers. Um, There is very funny uh, passages in biographies that are about entirely non-philosophical topics and someone suddenly says oh and by the way i think newton was right about absolute space <laughs> and <laughs> continue on with whatever else they were talking about <laughs> so even though this idea was uh, contested by people like leibniz and kant and um, it became extremely well known and widespread and and nicholson argues that there is a direct link between this idea that space is infinite and the way that people began to think about these landscapes that have an infinite feel, so things like mountainscapes. And she argues that Thomas Bennett, who's an early 18th century, uh, he's Thomas Bennett was a jack of all trades. Uh, he worked on science and philosophy. He's best known for his theory of the earth a book which describes how our planet came to be all the and it incorporates geology and theology as well as philosophy and science and and in burnett we really begin to find this shift where on the one hand he's a little bit repulsed by mountains but on the other he thinks that they're bringing him closer to god and and shortly after you find in more and more books of poetry and travel writing and literature this idea that when you stand on a mountain you're really inside a kind of divine cathedral this is a clue to how god really is that's fascinating um uh, so to um maybe to bring us back to earth in a certain way <laughs> um because I, I you know there's so much in the book i mean it's it's a it's 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 not a long book but it's philosophically got so many interesting um uh bits to it i want to make sure um that i get to ask you about um these two phenomena that that sort of get get discussed um uh each individually um 
but then, you know, it, as I was thinking about the book after having finished it, I thought, oh, maybe there's some connection to this. I'm not sure. Um, so uh, these, and, and again, I, um, one of these I had vague understandings of. Um, the other is totally new to me. Uh, you can guess which one is which. So there's something called cabin porn. Yes. <laughs> and um, I want also, which was the unfamiliar thing to me, uh, and uh, doom tourism. Um, can you tell us about those? This these seem to me oddly sort of like the opposite sides of the same coin or something like that. Um, but uh, can you tell us a little bit about the two phenomena? Yeah. So, having <laughs> porn. Let's start with that. So, I urge all of you to type this into your web browsers right now. <laughs> <laughs> not not at work. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but fear not. Um, what, what comes up will be photographs of beautiful rustic cabins. Um, and they're the kinds of things that you look at and you think, my goodness, I'd like to live there. I could live a solitary life, write as many books as I like. Um, and this it has become a bit of a phenomenon. Right? So there's books about cabin porn. Um, there are uh, many, many articles about it. it and it, almost all of those sources it trace its roots in the work of Henry Theroux's Walden, uh, which was uh, written um, a couple of centuries ago. And it's about the philosopher Theroux spending time in Walden Pond and he builds himself a cabin by the woods uh, and the book is filled with the most beautiful reflections on its self-sufficiency and nature and um, so he spends pages for example looking at the ice cracking on the surface of frozen Walden Pond um, and he's inspired generations of people uh, to go out into nature, um, some of which have also built their own cabins. <laughs> if you ever come across an article about someone who went trekking into the wilderness and built a cabin, I bet you they will mention Walden at some point yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> during their explanation. Yeah, so people think that he's very much at the heart of this idea of getting back to, to nature. And, and then doom tourism. Uh, that was the second thing. The, the, right. Yes. Doom tourism is a phenomenon that has been around arguably for as long as there's been tourism. In the most general sense, it's the act of visiting somewhere that you think won't last much longer. It, so there are historical reports about people visiting um historical monuments before they were about to be torn down for example um, and of course things like the Berlin Wall that saw a big surge in tourism before um, it was taken down but what it's come to mean more specifically over the last decade or so is visiting places that are seen to be doomed because of climate change the classic examples are glaciers and coral reefs. Due to increasing worldwide temperatures, glaciers are melting, the coral reefs are dying. And so there are all kinds of lists online, uh, you know, 20 places to see before they're gone, um, last chance tourism. This has become a really big phenomenon. And, and I think you're right that they're linked. I think both of them at their heart can be about appreciating the natural world, the, the beauty of 
wild places that are around us. Right. Um, I guess one of the, and, and you do mention this in the book, I guess one of the sort of, um, it doesn't rise to the level of a paradox in any philosophical sense, I don't think, but, um, you know, advertising the sort of last chance, you know, tourism to these places that are doomed, you know, kind of accelerates the doom. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, you know, it's, it's, there's something, um, opportunistic about it. That's a little bit odd, right. Making money off of, um, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, the glaciers are, are melting away, uh, seems, um, unsavory in a certain sense and counterproductive maybe um it's hard to say right um i I think that's right so doom tourism needn't be paradoxical in that sense so something like visiting the berlin wall before it fell well why not visiting the wall isn't gonna hasten the demise of the wall but flying to a remote glacier with that kind of carbon footprint is gonna be increasing climate change which is the source of why the glaciers are disappearing in the first place. And so the paradox is that, you know, you want to visit these places before they, before they're gone. And yet the very act of visiting them is increasing at the rate at which they're, they're leaving, if you like. Right. And and yeah, I think we have to learn to travel more responsibly we just have to, and and it's certainly exploiting these places. It's just heartbreaking. You, I would hope there are ways that we we can travel to these places and see them in ways that are not going to hasten their demise. But honestly, I'm not yet sure what that is. So there's carbon carbon offsetting schemes it are really popular at the moment. Um, and the idea of slow travel, so traveling by train and by bus rather than by taking lots of flights, is also a movement that's gaining popularity. And I wonder whether that's one that will accelerate after the crisis. Yeah. Let's hope. I mean, <laughs> agreed. Um, yeah, let's hope. It'd be uh, nice uh, if good things came out of this. You know, as you were talking, I was just reminded, and this is, you know, almost apropos of nothing. It's not addressed in the book. Um, the the film director, Werner Herzog, somewhere claims that if you want to be a filmmaker, you have to um, travel by foot. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, before we... Um, uh, uh, before we um, uh, uh, wrap up, though, you know, you've been very generous with your time uh, and it's been a real pleasure talking with you. Um, I want to make sure, though, that we get to um, uh, talk a little bit uh, about the very ending of the book, which is about space travel mm. um, and about um, sort of what space travel um means or as it becomes uh as it likely will uh widespread and available and accessible to more and more people um what how will it change our conception of the earth and our conception of traveling uh in the more terrestrial <laughs> sense of that term um you know can you tell us a bit about how you know how the book ends the book ends with exactly the question you've just asked Looking ahead to space travel, what impact is that going to have on the way we think about ourselves and our planet? And I think the big impact it's going to have is that it's going to make us realise how little we are. 
as soon as you begin thinking in universe-sized terms, you realise how absolutely tiny the planet is and, and how small human beings are by comparison. And I don't actually think that's a bad thing. I think having a healthy sense of our own insignificance can be really worthwhile. It reminds us of just how little we know about the universe and about ourselves and how much there is out there to explore. So I hope that I hope that space travel will be inspiring rather than overwhelming in the future. I think it's definitely coming. I really do. Uh, whether it's you know a couple of decades or a couple of hundred years, I think space tourism will definitely arrive for the masses in the not too distant future. Well, you know, we'll, <laughs> we'll see. And I, I suppose that there's a non-insignificant uh, chance that um, when that is available to us, um, space travel won't really be tourism, but might be necessary um, because of the climate on our own planet. Oh, goodness. I hope not. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's certainly if space travel becomes necessary for that reason, I think it will happen very quickly. It's <laughs> pour a lot of money into things when they want to. Uh, right. Um, so um, can you tell me what, what's your next project now? Now that you've, you know, you've, you've written the technical philosophy stuff on space and time, you've written this fabulous book about travel. Um, what will you do next? Actually, my current project is another technical project on space and time. Yeah, <laughs> fabulous. <laughs> I'm writing a book about how, um, I think lots of debates we have in philosophy of time today were actually invented about a hundred years ago. So questions like whether the past is real, does the does the present move? And I'm looking into how those questions came about and how the answers were developed. And there will definitely be more non-technical stuff in the future. But right now, this is it. <laughs> well, fantastic. Uh, I look forward to uh, to seeing that and uh, maybe to reading the, the, uh, the, the next technical book. Um, but for now, you know, Emily, I just want to thank you for joining me on new books and philosophy. It's been really wonderful talking to you about your new book. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Um, and thank you listeners uh, for joining us, uh, Emily and I, for our discussion of Emily Thomas's new book, which is titled The Meaning of Travel. It's published by Oxford University Press. Thank you for listening to new books and philosophy and bye for now. Mm-hmm.